Chapter 24 The Robber Council of Vatican II It is advantageous to find a precedent to the Second Vatican Council, at least in regard to the methods that were used in it by the active liberal minority, which quickly became the majority. In this respect, the Second Council of Ephesus in 449 A.D. is to be mentioned under the title that Pope Leo I afterwards gave to it, the Robber Synod, or the Robber Council of Ephesus. It was presided over by an ambitious and unscrupulous bishop, Dioscorus, who, through the help of his monks and of imperial soldiers, exerted an unheard-of pressure on the fathers of the council. The presidency that the papal legates claimed was refused to them. The pontifical letters were not read. This council, which was not ecumenical for that reason, ended by declaring as orthodox the heretic Eutyches, who upheld the error of monophysitism, which claimed that Christ had only one sole nature. Vatican II was likewise a robber council, except for this difference, that the popes, John XXIII and Paul VI, although present, did not oppose the surprise attack of the liberals with resistance, or at least very little, and even favored their enterprises. How was this possible? Proclaiming this council to be pastoral and not dogmatic, putting the stress on aggiornamento and ecumenism, these popes at the outset deprived the council and themselves of the intervention of the charism of infallibility, which would have protected them from all error. In the present chapter, I will relate three of the maneuvers of the liberal clique at Vatican II. The Pellerin magazine of November 22, 1985 reported some very instructive secrets told by Cardinal Leinhardt to a journalist, Claude Beaufort, in 1972 on the first general session of the Council. I will read to you at length that article entitled, Cardinal Leinhardt, The Council, The Apotheosis of My Life. I will content myself with bringing my observation to this. The article reads, October 13, 1962. The Council Vatican II holds its first working session. The order of the day foresees that the Assembly designates the members of the specialized commissions called to help it in its task. But the 2,300 fathers gathered in the immense nave of St. Peter's hardly knowing one another. Can they right away elect competent teams? The curia evades the difficulty. Along with the balloting forms are distributed the lists of the former preparatory commissions established by itself. The invitation to renew the same teams is clear. End quote. What would be more normal than to re-elect to the conciliar commissions those who for three years had prepared irreproachable texts in the midst of the preparatory commissions? Obviously, this proposal could not be to the liking of the innovators. The article continues. On entering the Basilica, Cardinal Leinhardt was informed of this very ambiguous procedure by Cardinal Lefebvre, Archbishop of Bourges. Both of them knowing the great diffidence of the pre-conciliar commissions, their cast of mind very Roman and not very much harmonized to the sensibility of the universal church, 
they dread that the same causes will produce the same effects. The Bishop of Lille sits on the Board of Presidency for the Council. This position, explained by his interlocutor judges, permits him to intervene, to thwart the workings, to insist on the lapse of time necessary in order that the Episcopal conferences may be able to propose representative candidacies. End quote. The liberals thus dread the Roman theologians and schemas. In order to obtain commissions of a liberal, let us use this word, sensibility, new lists must be prepared which will include members of the worldwide liberal mafia, a little organization, and then, at the beginning, immediate intervention will attain the goal. The article continues. Helped by Bishop Garonne, Cardinal Lefebvre prepared a text in Latin which he slipped to Cardinal Leinhardt. Here you have a text already completely prepared by Cardinal Lefebvre, Archbishop of Bourges. There has therefore not been any improvisation, but premeditation, let us say, preparation and organization between cardinals of liberal sentiment. The article continues. Ten years later, this one, Cardinal Leinhardt, recalled his state of mind on that day in the following terms. I was cornered. Either convinced that this was not reasonable, I would say nothing and fail in my duty, or indeed I would speak out. We could not resign from our function, which was to elect. So I took my paper and I leaned over towards Cardinal Tisserant, who was beside me and who was presiding, and said to him, Eminence, I cannot vote. This is not reasonable. We do not know one another. I ask you for the floor. He answered me, That is impossible. The order of the day does not foresee any debate. We have assembled simply to vote. I cannot give you the floor. I said to him, Then I am going to take it. I got up and trembling, read my paper. I immediately realized that my intervention met the anxiety of all those who were there. They applauded. Then Cardinal Frings, who was a little farther away, got up and said the same thing. The applause got louder. Cardinal Tisserant offered to adjourn the session and to give a report to the Holy Father. All of this had lasted scarcely twenty minutes. The fathers left the basilica, thus sounding the alarm for the journalists. They put together some fictional stories. The French bishops in revolt at the council. But this was not a revolt. It was a discreet consideration. By my rank and by circumstances, I was obliged to speak. Otherwise, I would be giving up. For inwardly, this would have been a resignation. End quote. Leaving the conciliar Allah, a Dutch bishop straightforwardly expressed his thoughts and those of the liberal French and German bishops by yelling out at a priest among his friends who was some distance away. Our first victory! One of the liberal clique's most effective means of pressure on the council was the IDOC, the Institute of Documentation, at the service of the productions of the liberal intelligentsia, which flooded the conciliar fathers with innumerable texts. The IDOC itself declared that it had distributed up to the end of the third conciliar session more than four million sheets, the organization and the productions of IDOC went back to the Dutch Episcopal Conference. The financing was assured in part by Father Verenvried, 
and by Cardinal Cushing, Archbishop of Boston in the United States. The huge secretariat was located on the Via dell'Amina in Rome. On our side, for the conservative bishops, we had certainly tried to counterbalance this influence thanks to Cardinal Larona, who placed his secretariat at our disposal. We had typewriters and copiers and a few people, three or four. We were very busy, but this was insignificant in comparison with the organization of the IDOC. Some Brazilians, members of the TFP, helped us with unheard-of devotion, working at night to copy the studies that had been written up by five or six bishops, the directing committee of the Cetus Internationalis Patrum, which I had founded with Bishop Carly, Bishop of Segni, and Bishop de Proença Sigo, Archbishop of Diamantina in Brazil. Two hundred and fifty bishops were affiliated with our organization. It was with Father V. A. Berto, my personal theologian, the above-mentioned bishops, and others like Bishop de Castro Mayer and a few Spanish bishops, that we drew up these texts, which were then copied at night. Early in the morning, these few Brazilian friends left by car to distribute our sheets in the hotels, in the letterboxes of the conciliar fathers, as the IDOC was doing the same thing with an organization twenty times larger than ours. The IDOC and many other organizations and meetings of liberals are the illustration of the fact that there was a conspiracy in this council, a plot prepared in advance from years before. They knew what had to be done, how to do it, and who was going to do it. Unfortunately, this plot succeeded. The great majority of the council was poisoned by the power of the liberal propaganda. It is certain that with the 250 conciliar fathers of the Chetus, we tried with all the means put at our disposal to keep the liberal errors from being expressed in the text of the council. This meant that we were able, all the same, to limit the damage, to change these inexact or tendentious assertions, and to add that sentence to rectify a tendentious proposition, an ambiguous expression. I have to admit that we did not succeed in purifying the counsel of the liberal and modernist spirit that impregnated most of the schemas. Their drafters, indeed, were precisely the experts and the fathers tainted with this spirit. Now, what can you do when a document is in all its parts drawn up with a false meaning? It is practically impossible to purify it of that meaning. It would have to be completely recomposed in order to be given a Catholic spirit. What we were able to do by the measures that we introduced was to have interpolated clauses added to the schemas. This is quite obvious. It suffices to compare the first schema on religious liberty with the fifth one that was written, for this document was five times rejected and five times brought back for discussion in order to see that we succeeded just the same in reducing the subjectivism that tainted the first drafts. Likewise, for Gaudium et Spes, the paragraphs can easily be seen which were added at our request and which are there, I would say, like pieces brought back onto an old coat. It does not stick well together. The logic of the early drafting is no longer there. 
the additions made to lessen or to counterbalance the liberal assertions remained there like foreign bodies. It was not only we, the conservatives, who had such paragraphs added. Pope Paul VI himself had a preliminary explanatory note added to the Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, in order to rectify the false notion of collegiality which is insinuated in the text at number 22. The most distressing thing is that the liberals themselves practice this system in the text of the schemas. An assertion would be made of an error, an ambiguity, or a dangerous orientation. Then, immediately after or before, an assertion would be declared in the opposite direction, intended to tranquilize the conservative conciliar fathers. Thus, in the Constitution on the Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, it states, A more extensive role can be granted to the vernacular language. And then, by entrusting to the Episcopal Assemblies the care of deciding whether the vernacular language will be adopted or not, the drafters of the text opened the door to the suppression of Latin in the liturgy. In order to soften this intention, they took care to write at first the following text. The use of the Latin language, except for particular law, will be kept in the Latin rites. Reassured by this assertion, the father swallowed the two others without a problem. Likewise, in the Declaration on Religious Liberty Dignitatis Humanae, of which the last schema was rejected by numerous fathers, Paul VI himself had a paragraph added which said in substance, This declaration contains nothing that is contrary to tradition, but everything that is expressed inside is contrary to tradition. Thus someone will say, Just read it. It is written, There is nothing contrary to tradition. Well, yes, it is written. But that does not stop everything from being contrary to tradition. That sentence was added at the last minute by the Pope in order to force the hand of those, in particular the Spanish bishops, who were opposed to this schema. Indeed, this maneuver unfortunately succeeded. Instead of 250 no's, there were only 74 all because of that one little sentence. There is nothing contrary to tradition. Well, let us be logical. They changed nothing in the text. It is easy, after the fact, to stick on a tag, a label of innocence. This is unbelievable behavior. Let us stop at this point on the robbery aspect and go on now to the spirit of the council.